You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeats.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, this is Blake Smith from Monster Talk. Why, why are you calling at this at this time? Well, you told me you'd help me inject some science content into my episode about kaiju, and I wanted to ask for your thoughts about some claims that many people have been making that in 1954, the city of Tokyo was attacked by a giant radioactive mutated dinosaur. No, nobody, nobody's claiming that. It's, it's just that's just a film. Okay, okay. Well, what about the claims that 1955, that same monster returned to attack Japan yet again? Also just a film. Well, can you address the many sightings of a giant moth that engaged in battle with this same giant radioactive dinosaur beast in 1964? Uh, Again, that is just, it's, it's a film, Blake. Okay, okay. Well, what about the alleged incident that took place in 1962 when this mysterious reptile was forced into combat with what many claimed was a giant ape? Yeah, that was based on an actual incident, a thing that actually happened in 1951. Really? No, not really. That was also just a film. Look, I called you for some science, and I have to say this is not very helpful. You you said you were going to ask something sensible uh, about Bigfoot or something. Okay, okay, okay. Here's one that sounds very scientific. How about the alleged case of a giant three-headed monster that... Oh, I don't think you're getting it. Just a film. Dang it. Now who am I going to get to help me talk about Godzilla and giant monsters for the show? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. As you may have guessed based on the intro, this is a special episode about Godzilla and other giant monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Karen Stolzno, we examine the legends and facts behind legendary monsters. But sometimes, we like to take a look at purely fictional creatures, and that's what we're doing today. A special thanks to Darren Nash of the Tetrapod Zoology blog and the Tet Zoo Podcasts. Darren wrote a wonderful piece on the biology of Godzilla back in 2010, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. 
Because of the length of this episode, I'm going to keep the intro short. But this is a topic I really love, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. I want to give a quick reminder that we're a podcast created by science advocates and skeptics, but we love monsters. And we always like to remind people that anybody can have a weird experience, even hardcore skeptics. To really illustrate this point, my co-host Karen has put together an anthology of real-life stories of odd occurrences by some of the most prominent skeptics out there. I really encourage you to go to Amazon and check it out. A link to her book, Would You Believe It? Mysterious Tales from People You Would Least Expect. It is available in paperback and e-reader now. One note, as sometimes happens, we had some issues with the audio and I had to recover from a backup copy. And the interview was spread across two recording sessions, which ended up with wildly varying audio quality in the two segments. I've done my best to minimize that, but apologize to any audio files out there. Monster Talk. Today we're talking to Michael Keller and Ed Gotchaszewski. Uh, Michael is the co-editor of Monster Attack Team magazine, along with the founder, Edward Holland, and uh, the upcoming co-host of an Area 42 podcast, uh, and we'll put links to that in the show notes, uh, monsterattackteam.com, and then the Area 42 podcast, I assume, will be available in whatever podcast aggregator you use, but again, uh, when that goes live, we'll get the show notes updated to have the active link for that. Absolutely. And Ed is the publisher of Japanese Giants magazine. He's the author of the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Godzilla. He's a producer and writer of the documentary Bring Godzilla Down to Size. He has provided DVD commentary for Toho Films along with Steve Rifle. And is the co-author, again with Steve Rifle, of Ashiro Honda, A Life from Godzilla to Kurosawa, which is due to be published in October 2017. Thank you for joining us on Monster Talk, guys. Pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, this is a big topic, obviously, uh, and it's one that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. You know, a lot of time on Monster Shock, we deal with uh, cryptids, but we do like to talk about folklore and pop culture monsters as well. And I think it's hard to overstate the impact of giant monsters on uh, pop culture. Uh, the, they, they're just they're everywhere. They're in advertising. They're in stories. They're in movies. They're in and poetry. And they around, too. I'm going all the way back to mythology, you know. That's a very good point. Yes, excellent. Yeah. So I I, kind of want to focus on uh, the impact of uh, Japanese cinema, but it's really a global phenomenon, as you say. And it uh, It started with the Japanese, didn't it? Well, it depends on how you classify it, I guess. I kind of think of King Kong as the first giant monster movie, although I think The Lost World actually predates that. Um, Well, King Kong, I think, was the first giant monster movie where the monster was unique. Lost World was just dinosaurs. But, uh, yeah, the plot of it, the plot of The Lost World did, was almost exactly the same as King Kong, except instead of having a a giant ape, you had uh, an apatosaurus that filled that role. And it, it didn't get hooked up with any blonde chicks. I guess the first question is, what is a kaiju? Or what are kaiju? If I'm not mistaken, I think the literal translation of the Japanese word kaiju is strange creature. Uh, and I think colloquially it means monster. And if you add a die to that, die kaiju, that means giant monster. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll welcome Ed's input on that. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's a, a, any number of ways that you can... Uh, translate that particular word, but you know, as as Mike has pointed out, the the popular translation is uh, literally weird creature. But you know, in the case of uh, monster movies uh, in Japan, you know, kaiju has been the the word that has been attached to the, this particular genre. 
There's so, also a, another word that has not been made as popular over here, but uh, is used in, in Japan called kaijin. That's J-I-N as opposed to J-U. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's used for monsters that are of a the same size as human beings. And uh, television shows such as Kamen Rider and other superhero shows, they use the word kaijin. But we don't really use that over here yet. From uh, a historical perspective, uh, do... I guess when you think about, I assume Godzilla was the first of these, but I might be wrong on that. So, uh, if Godzilla was the first of the giant Japanese monsters, were they calling them kaiju back then? Or oh or? yeah, yeah, that that yes. that word was used from the beginning. Supposedly, there were two movies about King Kong that came out in 1933 or uh, thereabouts in Japan that are now completely lost forever, and uh, that nobody has any hope of ever seeing again. I have seen uh, supposed synopsis of those that have come to light recently where it turns out that there may not have been monsters in them at all, just some guy in a monkey suit playing King Kong. But I, that, that's the extent of what I know about it. Yeah, I've only seen, I've only seen a picture of, uh, from one, and you know, no footage has ever surfaced on these that I'm aware of. Maybe it will, though. That's, one of the, that's like the... Uh the Thomas Edison version of Frankenstein's one of those famous lost cinema. And I think a little bit of that footage is still around, but oh, the whole uh, movie the whole movie was, has been found. It's on YouTube. You can see it. Neat. So yeah. I, I knew they had recovered some of it. I didn't know how far that had gone. And then, um, what's the other one? There was the Lon Chaney one. Was it like London after midnight? London I think. after midnight. Yeah. No, yeah. but yeah, that's completely lost. And then they did a uh, Turner Classic Movies did a, a presentation where they basically put it together with a series of uh, production stills and made sort of a here's what it would have looked like, which right. was pretty interesting. Why Godzilla, I guess, is what I'm curious about. I mean, um, where does this come from and uh, how did it impact Japanese culture? I mean, uh, I know it, how it impacted American culture, but maybe just talk about the story of Godzilla, how it came to be and the American distribution and why there's a difference in the versions well, as far as the, the first film, uh, the, the uh, popular story that uh, has been put forth by the producer, Tomiyuki Tanaka, is that he came up with it while he was on a plane coming back from Indonesia, where one of his major co-productions with the Indonesian government had fallen through, and he was suddenly without you know, a big blockbuster that he was looking to produce for that you know, for that time period in 1953, and he's flying out over the you know, over the ocean back to Japan, and he looks down at the ocean, and he comes up with the idea of, you know, well, what if a, a some kind of giant creature from under the ocean were to appear, and you know that, that's this is kind of like his popular myth that he created, but basically, you know, at that time the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms had just come out in America and was a, a huge success. So, you know, being a, one of the top producers at Toho in Japan at that time, I mean, he's, he's very well aware of, of the box office trends, what's going on uh, in the world of cinema. And so I think he's, he took a look at that and said, well, why don't we do the same thing? And at the same time, I believe King Kong had just been reissued in Japan uh, around that time and had done very well. So it seemed like the time was good. Timing was good for uh, a giant monster film. If I'm not mistaken, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms was made because King Kong had just come on television in the U.S. in 1952 for the first time, and that ended up being a big hit. 
Is, do you have any remembrances of that, Ed? Uh, no, I mean, I hadn't heard that story before, but I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. If that was uh, so, that was correct told- me if I'm wrong. That's the, the that's the version. That's the Harryhausen film that was based on the Lighthouse short story by Bradbury. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so. Um, yeah, I know that those two had been like, huge fans of King Kong. In fact, Harryhausen had done work with, uh, was it Willis O'Brien, to learn right. how to do some of the stop motion stuff. So I know those guys love dinosaurs and love giant monsters. They, I, I'm sure they were thrilled at the opportunity to produce one on screen. But that was still a story about um, a, uh, a, a an ancient creature that was just still alive somehow, right? I mean, that there's oh, no atomic factor there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely there was an atomic factor. Oh, there was, okay. So, oh, the ato- was it atomic bombs at the beginning that woke it up? Yes. And oh. if you're, we're talking about the beast from 20,000 Fathoms? Yes, yeah, because I was trying to figure out with Godzilla what the tie-in was. I mean, obviously, thematically, there's the big... Uh, As anti- a matter of fact, uh, I've, I've heard and, well... Directly from the man himself, Harry uh, Harryhausen was very resentful of Godzilla because uh, he thought it was a uh, a one-up attempt of the beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. So he didn't he didn't care for Godzilla at all. Well, I don't know that Harryhausen resented the fact that uh, they made something sim- in a similar vein to the beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. I think what he really resented was the technique that they used to create the monster. He just felt that man in the suit was a a, a cheap and uh, not very effective way to create special effects. Uh, I had heard him say that himself, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well. Anyway, that's that, that that's <laughs> not the story that I always read about. But in any case, uh, you know the the origin of Godzilla still you know goes back more to. Uh, current events at the time, and, and uh, right around the time that they were uh, looking to produce the film, uh, we had the uh, Lucky Dragon Number no. Five incident, where a Japanese fishing boat wandered into one of the atomic uh, bomb test zones accidentally, and the crew got exposed to radiation, and they came back and were very sick, and it, it caused a huge uproar in Japan at that time. That Japanese citizens again were. Uh, subject to the effects of, of radiation from the, uh, the atomic bomb, and it was that, you know, that kind of hook that uh, also Tanaka seized on that there was you know, some atopical event that they could use to tie into uh, this monster film and you know, give it some political rebel- relevance at the time. So they, you know, they put together a, a crew. Eiji Tsuburaya was a, a very famous special effects guy in Japan and. He'd been wanting for many, many, many years to do some kind of a, a monster film because he was such a great admirer of King Kong. And this gave him his opportunity. And they, uh, uh, so Subraya was, was signed to the project and they picked a director uh, who was available uh, named Shiro Honda, who had worked with Tsuburaya the year before on Eagle of the Pacific, a big special effects extravaganza. So, you know, given the fact that those two had worked together successfully, uh, Honda seemed like the ideal candidate. Although, from what I understand, uh, he was not the first choice for directing Godzilla. They had picked instead one of his uh, uh, friends and colleagues, Senkichi Kanaguchi, to do that. But, uh, 
he didn't want to go anywhere near something like a giant monster film because, like a lot of people, you know, they feel like if you work on that kind of a project, you're going to get pigeonholed uh, into that kind of thing. Uh, and you know, professionally, that's not the direction a lot of people wanted to go. But Honda thought that this was a really great opportunity to make a statement about nuclear energy and the atomic bomb. And so he very eagerly signed on to the project. What about the American takes on kaiju? What can you tell us about uh, uh, films like uh, Cloverfield and Colossal and Pacific Rim? Uh, a lot of them do uh, freely uh, reference the, the Japanese films as influences, uh, especially in Pacific Rim, where they, they, use the, they go out of their way to use the word kaiju. So that, you know, it's, a very, it, it's very in your face in that case. Yes, with yeah. giant robots, too. So. <laughs> but, yeah. I don't yeah. know enough about Japanese culture. Do they, is there a, uh, a special name for giant robot movies as opposed to giant monster movies? No, okay. <laughs> but, but uh, two two other uh, words. Well, well, at least one other word that uh, might be important would be uh, tokusatsu, uh, which is the Japanese word for live action special effects films, and uh, that would not just cover the uh, the kaiju ego or monster movies, but also space operas and anything any type of Japanese sci fi and movies with giant robots would be considered tokusatsu ega and television shows would be called terabi tokusatsu okay and so you said that there were some american films that had that similar theme of radiation created creatures what are some of those ones them about uh, the giant ants from radiation uh i think the deadly mantis had, was caused by uh, radioactivity or was awoken we've already mentioned the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms uh and there was a, uh, a British film called The Giant Behemoth, which was radioactive. Okay. And were they influenced by any uh, events that took place in the States or just the, the Japanese-style films? I think it was just the, uh, the Cold War and the, uh, the duck-and-cover culture that was going on at the time. Yeah. In the 50s, they were still doing atomic bomb testing in the, the desert in the southwest. And that's pretty much directly referenced, in, especially in them, that... That's really the reason why these you know, mutated ants were created. Right. But you know, the, just the fact that you know the atomic age was just something that was really in, in the news, and there was mm -hmm. testing, and the Cold War was going on, where people were feeling the nuclear threat. Mm -hmm. uh, that became <laughs> yeah, that became a very uh, easy hook for uh, science fiction filmmakers to grab onto and uh, radiation was kind of like the, uh, the 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 magic ingredient to to uh, explain away a lot of the, the giant monsters and science fiction films of that era sure i think that was that had something to do with uh, finding vegetation that was extremely large that happened after some of these atomic tests and i i, I believe that's where that idea came from yeah, I've been actually trying to track that down with a little bit more precision, and I, I unfortunately haven't found a, a, a case zero, if you will, but I'd like to. But I think you can draw a really nice uh, story of where you've got the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with a, a nuclear bomb, and then Godzilla. And then in the same year, you get them, which is absolutely radiation-based giantism. And, and once that's become established as a successful trope, movies after that don't really have to explain it. They just say, oh, radiation. And you know, everybody's, oh, of course, radiation, right? They paved the way. <laughs> yeah. 
Another one would be the Amazing Colossal Man, and it's oh, yeah, yeah, War of the Colossal Beast. But. My son is a huge uh, giant monster fan, and we've got a, a pretty extensive collection of these films, including some pretty obscure ones. Um, good for you, yeah, get them started but, right. Oh, absolutely, yeah, you got to be a good parent, right? It's <laughs> like <laughs> so I don't know that they're going to like monsters when they grow up, but they're sure going to be educated about them. So, <laughs> well, we do, I, we do, yeah. <laughs> the uh, one of the things that I find really interesting, though, is that we had the good uh, opportunity to go see the original. I, I'm going to call it Gojira. Uh, oh, which, that's one of my that's one of my pet peeves, right there. Explain. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I said before when I mentioned that was one of my pet peeves. What I was referring to was the uh, the pronunciation of Godzilla's Japanese name, uh, because everybody always says uh, Gojira, but that that's not correct. It's a, it's Gojira. With the accent on the go rather than the jira, uh, the word gojira was made from the the Japanese words uh, gorilla, uh, gorilla, and kujira, which is whale. So Godzilla, gojira is a, literally a gorilla whale. The original Japanese version, not the uh, American release, was quite different. The American release, and I'm sure you guys can talk about this more accurately, but the American release was heavily edited and inserted Raymond Burr, who was never involved with principal filming in any way. Right. His, his character, Eve Martin, uh, <laughs> was just not a part of the original story. And the the American version, if you ever get a chance to compare it to the actual Japanese version, <laughs> is, is a watered-down mess. It's a, it's just ridiculous. And, and the original, I found, I mean, again, I'll let you guys talk about your thoughts on it, but it, I found it to be an incredibly serious film and not at all the sort of silly, uh, you know, guy in a giant, you know, monster costume that, that it sort of Godzilla became recognized as later. You know, uh, it's just a very dark, serious film. It would have been an awesome anime, honestly. Uh, but it, but for what it is, it's, I thought it was very successful. Well, everybody who has seen it thinks that, except for Roger Ebert. Before putting Roger Ebert aside, you know, yeah. I, I I think still, you know, I, I I mean, the the American version gets gets a lot of uh, grief and a lot of hate, but honestly speaking, I think, uh, you know, under the circumstances, if uh, the American version hadn't been made the way it was, that film probably would have never been released over here, and this phenomenon may not have taken place. Yeah, you know, I certainly, at yeah. That, that time, at that period in time, you know, exploitation films were all the rage, and you know, this was just a you know one one new commodity that the the you know producers in Hollywood could tap and say, okay, well, we have a ready-made film here, but. Gee, that the, the has nothing to do with America. There's nothing that people can really relate to, and you know, there's no stars. There's a, there's there's nothing. But if we you know, add a little footage of our own and you know put it out there, you know, we'll go see it because it's a it's a you know monsters monsters were selling at that time, but they needed a way to sell it in the in the states, so they made a version that could sell here and. That's what really opened the door, not only for for giant monster films from Japan, but basically for uh, it, it introduced Japanese cinema to the Western world. I mean, you, you can talk all you want about you know art house projects like Rashomon and that 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 were getting seen in the West, but that was just 
you know, a pimple on the face of the box office. Nobody, you know, there was no box office being generated by those kind of films. It was Honda's films that really made money for the Western world and introduced the world to Japanese cinema. So, you know, I, I believe that, you know, it was the right decision and it was the right way to go. I don't believe that it's so terribly watered down that it's, a, that it's a bad film in the way it was made. And in fact, I think in some ways it's very ingenious the way they, they you know, put Burr into it because it took me many years before I really recognized what they had done with it and, and how they had, had masked the fact that he was not part of the original production, you know. Right now, it's easy for us to see that because we have the, the convenience of video where you can go back and watch the same film a hundred times at your convenience. But you know, way back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was nothing like that. I mean, you, if, you're, if you're lucky, you saw it on TV once every you know, couple of years and people weren't able to sit there and overanalyze films like you can today. And for so for the time, this was, I believe, the right decision for them to make, and it was quite effective in in, in getting these films out to the public and, and opening the door for all these other films to to come to America. Talk to us a little bit about the various film periods that are surrounding Godzilla and his kin, uh, like a Millennium and uh, Showa. Uh, yeah, uh, Showa period is usually the. Uh, period of Japanese film that's supposed to coincide with, uh, I believe, the life of Emperor Hirohito. Is that correct, Ed? Yes. Yes. And uh, that officially ended, uh, what, what, what year did he die? I think it was 80, 88 or 89. I think it must have been 89. Right. But when we get into the uh, into Toho and into Kaijuega and Terabi Tokusatsu films, uh, when we and we break them up into these different uh, series, the Showa, the Heisei, and the Millennium, uh, they don't really coincide exactly to what those specifically are. I mean, for instance, the Showa period for Godzilla films is considered to end in 1975 with Terror of Mechagodzilla, and uh, the next film would be uh, Godzilla 1984, which over here was Godzilla 1985, and that's considered the start of the Heisei series, but. But that literally was a Showa film too, because Hirohito was still alive. Well, and as far as as far as I I know, I, uh, what I've seen in Japan, I don't see anybody considering uh, the '84 film as being a Heisei film. It's uh, story wise, it's it's part of it, you could consider it as part of that series. But it, uh, I mean, even if you look at books that come out that call themselves Heisei period, '84 you know, is not included in that. Yeah, well, fandom well, they, over here they, though they yeah, they, they, they do pretty strictly stick to the uh, the emperor's you know, naming convention. You know, the Heisei Emperor being Hirohito. Right, and so literally we we're still in the Heisei period. Although, again, the for fandom over here, the Heisei period was considered to end with Godzilla versus Destoria in uh, or Destroyer or however you're going to pronounce it. In 1995, and uh, I think after that we had a uh, lamentable American version in 1998, and yeah, then uh, then Toho started back up in uh, 1999 with Godzilla 2000, and those series of films through uh, 
Godzilla Final Wars in 2004 are considered the uh, the Millennium series, although, as as Ed's pointed out, technically they're they're still part of Heisei. Yeah, yeah, and I, I remains yet to be seen if we're going to assign a new moniker to uh, the films that are coming out in the wake of Shin Godzilla. Well, you know, I honestly, I, <laughs> this is what you want to talk about pet peeve. For me, uh, one of the pet peeves is, you know, why why do people, and especially in this country, I think it's ridiculous that they, you know, refer to these films as Showa and Heisei because those terms have absolutely no meaning to people here. Uh, you know, it, to me, it's easy enough to say original series, the the '90s series, and the you know '2000s or the millennials. <laughs> to me, see, to me, it makes much more sense. It's just like it's just like using you know other other you know borrowed words from Japanese to describe what there is a perfectly valid translation for in in English. I, I you know, I, I I think it's probably just like you know a fandom thing that people like to do that. Like uh, it's it's a way to you know, somehow own this in a different way than, you know, or distinguish it from, from other kinds of uh, genres. But I don't know, to me, it just never made it, you know, a whole lot of sense why people would do that other than, they're, you know, maybe trying to, you know, sound more Japanese or something. But, well, you know, but like, okay, like so- kai, kaiju is, you know, kaiju means monster. So... I really never quite got the idea of why do we have to refer to monsters as kaiju because they're monsters. We, you know, we don't call because there, there's a perfectly valid uh, translation for it. When, when you have words that there is no translation for, yeah, sure, I can I can easily see uh, using a Japanese term for that. But in case, like, especially like something like monsters, I always thought, why why would people even use that monsters? Well- I so it's funny that you bring that up. This is not one of her prepared questions, but there is the whole thing about within fandom. You know, you you end up with something kind of like uh, the word they use the shibboleth, right? You get these words that are kind of in group, out group code words, right? So when you know the words, it's a it's a way to tell other people that you have a mastery of this subculture, right? I, or at least that's my thought. But I, I am. I would agree with you with that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people in fandom uh, get really, really involved in all the the nuances and minutia, both uh, of the stuff that happens inside these fantasy and f- fictional products, uh, properties, and, and outside culturally, with like the the stories about the actors and the directors and, and the trivia. And and I, as a fan myself, I, I I I don't know why I get so excited about that information, but I love knowing more about it, and I, I hope our listeners are enjoying this. Uh, I, I, I like, the, I, I especially like the idea that people want to be interested in the information because I, all too often, I think uh, in fandom, especially, people are far more interested in toys and merchandise than they are about the actual films themselves. I mean, that's. Unfortunately, that's why I uh, have suspended publication of my magazine because I make this magazine and I, I research all the materials and stuff to try and put together an, an interesting uh, set of articles. But people aren't that interested in, in buying magazines because they have to read and learn. And <laughs> it seems like you know uh, a piece of uh, a hunk of vinyl that's you know shaped vaguely in, in the shape of a monster is is a hundred times more interesting to people. So you know, it, it, that kind of is a little bit depressing. So it, it's, it's nice to hear that, that there are people who are 
interested in learning about the films. But you know, the, to go back to the terminology, I guess the thing uh, I that that takes me back from that too is you know, it, it's it's almost like a way to uh, you know, as you say, maybe it, it's like your your badge of honor for being a fan or something, but. At the same time, I also feel that you know people who aren't that familiar with this, but are interested in the subject, it's a kind of way to exclude people from from uh, really sharing in, in in the fandom. You know, when when we have put together our uh, DVD commentaries, and especially in writing the the Honda book, we go out of our way to not use those kind of terms because not everybody who's going to be listening. Uh, to our commentaries or reading the book are familiar with that and we're hoping that they will become familiar and, and become fans but if you start out talking kaiju and eiga and, and terms like and tokusatsu films like that or terms like that you wind up uh, confusing and, and basically excluding people who aren't intimately familiar with it in an effort to try and you know, get everybody interested in this subject you know I, we actually Steve and I have gone out of our way to kind of avoid using those kind of terms and then you probably get people who complain thinking that you should be using them oh yeah <laughs> uh, it's which which uh, to which I always answer just what I told you is that I I, I don't feel it's you know, it's it's not something I, I think that we should be looking at as as an exclusive club it's something that I like to welcome everybody in I, I mean I a lot of the, the things that we do in terms of our research is to point out to people that these are not, uh, according to popular myth, you know, cheap, cheesy, lousy films that they didn't care about, that they just you know made on the fly just to just to make a quick buck. No, they're they're films that you know people pour their hearts and souls into making, and there's a lot of stories behind these people, and and that's what we really want to bring bring out to you know the general public to give them an appreciation for the, the craftsmanship and the work and the dedication of all these people who put these films together. Doing this, the, the Honda biography is a perfect example of that. I mean, Honda, you, you talk to general film critics who are always very dismissive of science fiction and you know, you'll bring up Godzilla or any of these Japanese science fiction films and they're always very dismissive. Oh, that guy was a hack. He's, you know, he's nobody. They're just, you know, churning out product. They don't really care. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. As you'll find out when you uh, read Ed's biography on uh, Honda, in fact, it's in the uh, the title of the book. It goes, it's from Godzilla to Kurosawa. Uh, Honda's, I think, probably, I might uh, go as far to say that Honda's best friend in the world was Akira Kurosawa. Would you say that, Ed? Yeah, that, that would be an accurate statement. Those two... Yeah. They were, they were like oil and water. They're opposites, but they became best friends. And, you know, the, the most famous and revered uh, filmmaker in Japanese cinema history is Kurosawa. But Kurosawa, you know, he always deferred to Honda and he trusted his judgment implicitly and, and felt he was every bit as talented a filmmaker as he was. Just they worked on different projects and they had different styles of, of, of working. Uh, once once Honda had retired and Kurosawa was was struggling getting some film projects off the ground, they they kind of renewed their friendship that they had struck up when they were both you know apprentice filmmakers back at you know when Tempo was first starting, and they just said you know let's get together and let's let's 
go back to the old days and and just make movies the old way. And that was what they did. And, and they didn't really even see that there was much of a dividing line between their duties. You know, Honda was a very modest guy, so of course he always uh, deferred to, to Kurosawa and and let him, you know, be the the lead man. But behind the scenes, he was every bit as influential on these films as, as Kurosawa was. Now, I, I'm trying to imagine Godzilla versus Toshiro Mifune. So <laughs> <laughs> could he withstand the samurai attack? I don't know. <laughs> well, one, one of the actors who, who was inside the Godzilla costume, uh, Kenpachiro Satsuma, Toshiro Mifune is his favorite actor. And uh, I don't really have anything else to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's so many monsters now that are in the Godzilla verse. Now, is there some. Uh, I say Godzillaverse all the time, but is there some Japanese name for that sort of collection of uh, those creatures in Giras, Rodan, Mothra, Ghidra, that sort of thing? I just call it the Rogues Gallery. I don't have Rogues Gallery. Yeah, so I was curious. Is there? Um, could you talk a little bit about how all these auxiliary monsters went from being uh, their own little feature film characters to becoming part of this bigger shared universe? Because I mean, this kind of, in a way predates the sort of Marvel shared continuity uh, with it's like the I don't know of any other property where they've done so much crossover well they kind of did in the old universal monster films uh, Frankenstein Wolfman and uh, Dracula the, the, throughout the 1940s those those characters would end up in films together uh, yeah. and and of course that, that that had been done in literature before too uh, uh, like like everything that Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote, that all existed in the same universe, and he wrote a lot of stuff. But uh, how though, like how they all ended up in the same universe together? Uh, I don't know if there's a particular story about that. I just think that they they made some of these movies separately, and then they decided to make movies where these two of these creatures would appear in the same film together, and it it worked. They the movies made money, so they kept doing it. Yeah. I don't think it was really by design. It was, you know, in, you, you started out in the 50s and they had all these separate property or separate films that they were making. And there was never any idea of any particular continuity. You had Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, you know, various films like that that were made. And then at a certain point, as the box office started getting uh, decreasing a little bit and television started uh, eroding the market for films. They're still looking to make more films. I mean, they, they could have continued trying one-off properties, but, you know, as King Kong versus Godzilla showed them, uh, bringing back an old character, in, in, in the case of Godzilla, you know, Godzilla hadn't appeared for, what, seven years since, uh, you know, the, the previous film, when they brought Godzilla back for King Kong versus Godzilla. That made money. So, you know, being uh, smart producers, they, they see what makes money and they decided to continue down the same path. And that meant, you know, making more versus movies. And one of the best or easiest ways for them to do that was to rely on established characters, which they already had out there. And, you know, on occasion, adding new ones in. So things like King Ghidra uh, appeared and, and, and were added. But basically it's, it's you know, I think it was just a matter of judging the market of what, what was selling at that time and going forward with that. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of the common kaiju misconceptions and the falsehoods that are, are around? 
Well, one that I always I uh, already mentioned was the pronunciation of a Gojira, but uh, yeah, there's there's one that's uh, that was around for a very long time. That there were uh, two endings to King Kong versus Godzilla, which 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 was never true. There's there's only one ending to that film. Wonder how that got started then. <sighs> Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, supposedly it was made popular in Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, but I don't think Forrest J. Ackerman made it up. I got – because I uh, met him once and I asked him about it. I got the impression that he still thought it was true. So uh, I think that he misheard something or somebody else told him, and, and I don't know who that would be. Maybe somebody at, the, uh, at Universal. Something that's interesting about that, though, is that there are some movies that actually do have two endings, uh, including Japanese monster movies. One of them is Frankenstein Conquers the World. But only, both of those endings are on the, the DVD, but I only think one of them ever actually was shown theatrically. Yes, that's correct. Which ending was shown theatrically? It's the one that has... Uh, the giant Frankenstein monster killed the monster Baragon, and then shortly thereafter, there's a landslide, and he's buried. Uh, yep, that's the one I've seen. Yep. Okay. <laughs> In the uh, the alternate version, uh, right after Frankenstein kills Baragon, a giant octopus crawls up out of the ocean and grabs Frankenstein and pulls him under the water. Actually, out of the lake, because they're, they're, up, in, they're up in the mountains in the Fuji area. Which is very strange because uh, generally octopus don't don't live in lakes, much less up in the mountains. But it was very motivated. Yeah, but you know that that was uh, the American side who was uh, co-funding the production had asked, or at least the story goes that they had asked for that CD film, and ultimately when they saw it, they realized it didn't make any sense, so they didn't use it. So you got the footage that was made specifically for the American version that was never shown in America and eventually only got wound up seeing in Japan. Yeah, the, the uh, that, that's a strange film, but I, I do like this sort of uh, uh, pulp kind of feel that it has where you start out with uh, the Nazis bringing the heart of the Frankenstein monster to Japan during World War II and atomic exposure. It, it's a brutal film. Um, it's got uh, an American in it. Um, Nick Adams. Nick Adams, who's appeared in... Uh, he appears in several Japanese productions. Well, he's uh, also in Monster Zero, and uh, I think he was also might have been in some Japanese films that weren't monster films. I'm not sure. Do you know much about his uh, his involvement with Japanese cinema? Like, how, why Nick Adams? I mean, I mean... 
like how did he get that gig and become the American guy for these monster movies? Well, they were looking for uh, American you know, things to sell these films overseas, and one of the things to, that they could use for that purpose was to get you know a, a well-established Western actor, and uh, Nick Adams happened to be the guy that they got. Uh, I think the story goes that originally they were trying to get somebody like David Jansen to do the part, uh, but he turned it down, and Nick Adams, whose career wasn't going all that well at the time, uh, decided to sign on, and um, Nick was kind of like a much more of a professional actor that, uh, you know, regardless of whether, you know, whether these were high-budget Hollywood films or not, he still gave it his all, and he, he did a good job at what he was given to do, and uh, in, at least in Japan, uh, among the staff, the director Honda and all his his crew uh, and, and the fellow actors, Nick was a very popular guy because he really took it seriously and gave a, a, a good effort in everything he did, unlike uh, Russ Tamlin, who would follow in his footsteps and uh, do only one film in Japan because he pretty much thought everything about the production was beneath him and he treated the whole thing with uh, a great amount of disdain and as a result was never asked back because Nobody liked him there. Nick Adams' career was cut pretty short. He was still very young when he died, uh, and, and I, I think uh, it was to me it looks. I mean, well, I'm not, I'm not a policeman, but uh, he, he was uh, he died of a drug overdose, if I remember correctly. But uh, there, uh, some of his, uh, I think it was Forrest Tucker said he always thought he was murdered, but it seemed like a pretty obvious drug overdose to me. But who do I know? Nick was in Die Monster Die, which had uh, Boris Karloff in it, mm-hmm. and also was based on an H.P. Lovecraft story. But my, the, where I first saw Nick and loved his work was he did the movie version of uh, No Time for Sergeants with uh, yes. Andy Griffith, which is just a fantastic movie. Well, he was the Bethel Johnny Emma. He was. He was. I've never seen that show, but I knew that that was where he was. He got most of his uh, pop culture popularity, and he was apparently good friends with James Dean, but. Uh, or at least claimed to be. So. <laughs> anyway, died too young and uh, is in a, a lot of films uh, that are uh, in my collection that I like a lot. So, Any other misconceptions or falsehoods you want to talk about? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily falsehoods, but false impressions. You know, uh, again, Japanese films tend to get a bad rap, uh, especially the film, some of the films from the 50s that were brought over here. And that the they're not they, cheap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way they are Americanized, uh, in many cases, especially uh, I'll use uh, Gigantus, the Fire Monster, and Battle in Outer Space as prime examples. The companies that brought them over here uh, didn't really treat them with a, a whole big amount of respect and they they, they gave them uh, what I would call laughable dubbing tracks which are, are not the fault of the you know, the company that produced the movie it's it's the company that's releasing over here their, their their production of the American version was basically really poor and unfortunately the films themselves wind up suffering uh, by that association you have you know like in Gigantus, you have one of the characters speaking in a basically a Yogi Bear voice, and some, <laughs> and some really terrible trite dialogue that they write for the uh, for the dubbing script. Uh, they you know would change out music, uh, put in you know library music or things that just weren't particularly appropriate. 
So Japanese films also kind of got a bad rap uh, at that in the early stages, just because of you know some very poor dubbing jobs, things that were like the voices wouldn't match the character on the screen, the timing of the the dubbing was bad, the, the voice actors were were extremely poor, and all that kind of stuff uh, unfortunately rubs off on the film itself, and, and films got a bad rap because of that. So why well, do you think? Oh. Or go ahead. I was going to ask, why do you think they uh, they did that to the movies? Again, you know, in the, in the case of some of these films, these are you know the the producers and, and, and people who are bringing these products into the U.S. market at the time. They're all just looking for a quick buck, some kind of product to fill the the double features up with at that time, and some of them took a lot of care in doing that. Some of them just found the cheapest way to do it possible. Uh, so, I mean, that, that really varied company by company. In the, in the 60s, uh, it was really like the best situation because a, a company uh, by the name of American International picked up a lot of these uh, films, and uh, the studio that they had dubbing the films, Hydra Studios, uh, did a fantastic job. They, they got real voice actors, and they wrote you know, professional dubbing scripts for these things, and they did a, a fantastic job. Those those films sound really good. Unfortunately, those soundtracks are mostly lost today because uh, American International went under and to rights, rights on some of those films reverted to Toho and Toho will not use those dubbing tracks any longer. So you have films like Destroy All Monsters, which uh, I think the you know, original version, uh, original American version is, is terrific, but you hear the, the dubbing track that Toho uses on, on their video releases now. That was a, a track that was produced by them over in Asia, and it's atrocious. And it makes the film, it, it makes the film sound, uh, sound and look laughable in comparison. Uh, it's really not the same film. You know, Destroy All Monsters is a film I love, and uh, I, I think after seeing the version that's out on video now where they use the Toho's international dubbing track, that version is so terrible that if I had seen that version first, I probably wouldn't like that movie at all. So I'd like to talk about uh, Shin Godzilla, uh, which some people call Godzilla Resurgence. I guess that's the international title. I think that was the official international title. Do you know the story of how that movie came to be? Because it, it seems quite different from the uh, American version. So this was like a new American version that they recently did, 2014. But there, there is a big divergence in all these timelines, and I guess that's really where this question is going, is is there an overarching timeline or, or, or how, you know, they're not, it's not like a reboot, but there's this weird shared universe or multiverse of Godzilla properties, and how does Shin Godzilla fit into that, or is anyone trying to make a canonical... Uh, sort of encapsulation of all these properties. How does that work? Well, Shin Godzilla is its own entity, and as of right now, it's the only film that exists in that universe, which is kind of unique because uh, every time that they've rebooted the series before, they've always incorporated the first film. They always said, like, nothing else happened except for the first movie, but this time, this is completely starting over from scratch, so it's a remake in, in a sense. That's correct. Yeah. The tone's really interesting. I mean, the the original Godzilla was was very very serious, um, as we talked about earlier. 
This one seems more political in nature. Could you talk a little bit about what the theme is? Or I mean, I don't want to spoil the movie. I, I mean, in some sense, it's almost like you can't spoil giant monster movies if the point is to watch giant monsters smashing stuff. But but I think there's a lot going on in this film. Well, yeah, there is a lot of uh, political satire in it, almost like Doctor Strangelove. I don't want to put it in the, say it's on the same level as Doctor Strangelove. You know, it's not anywhere close to being that good, but, uh, it, it's, it, it's in, it's kind of doing the same thing. Uh, a friend of mine who didn't like it compared it to a bad episode of the West Wing with a monster in it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah. it was a, a divergent, uh, not just in the history, but like the, the, the way Godzilla appears, the Godzilla doesn't just appear the way he appears at the end of the film. There's, there's some things happening to his physic, physical representation throughout the course of the film. You know, in the, in the Kawakita era, Kawakita was really keen on showing different phases of all the different monsters. So you'll see outside of Godzilla, just about every other creature had multiple forms. That was his way to just get more more uh, creatures in a film. And even with Godzilla, you had the progression from uh, baby to little to junior to the revived Godzilla after the, after the parent uh, melted down. So that's not unusual to see that in these films, but uh, we're having Godzilla himself go through any kind of changes. Uh, this was certainly a, a unique thing. You should uh, say who Kawakita is. Kawakita is the uh, special effects director for the films that were made uh, during the late 80s and the 90s. You know, if, if I could uh, just for a moment go back to the political thing, because one thing I really want to mention about that is, yes, the, you know, Shin Godzilla itself is uh, uh, it's a very political movie, and in some ways that's one of the things that I do not appreciate about it, because it kind of uh, stands on uh, the head of what Honda had intended to do with Godzilla and why Godzilla was created. Uh, you know, Godzilla has never been, well, at least in my opinion, has not been uh, a political symbol or, or uh, the movies haven't really been political. They've been about uh, themes that are kind of universal, humanistic themes. And the fact that they would take Godzilla and use it for blatantly political means in, in, in this film, uh, I find that a little bit uh, disturbing to me. Maybe, maybe I take it a little differently because I'm uh, so closely associated with this the Honda book and so interested in, in Honda's uh, career and, and his intention for these films, but it kind of bothers me that the film is used in this way. Not so much the political satire because I mean, well, that's that's kind of like the, in fact, I don't think that that's particularly uh, special or you know, particularly good feature of this film because it's such an easy thing to do. You know, the Japanese government is famous for being uh, very slow and very uh, bureaucratic. And so that's you know, pretty much like low-hanging fruit. That I, I think that anybody could make a pretty clever satire of the Japanese government. But the, the thing that bothers me much more is the uh, highly nationalistic uh, viewpoint that this film takes, that, you know, that it, it pretty much promotes the idea that Japan should disregard the Constitution and change it and make the military uh, in Japan pretty much independent. 
and able to do what they want. And I, I, you know, I think back of, and I can't tell what, what Mr. Honda would have thought about that, but I, I would think that he'd be highly disappointed that, you know, his, the, the, the film property that he created for an entirely different purpose is now being used for this kind of, uh, Political, scoring political points because Godzilla was never about about politics. It was always about uh, you know the, the the optimism for for human beings, cooperation, uh, warning against uh, nuclear energy and and all the dangers that it has uh, inherent in it, but not you know not for making a, a blatantly political statement such as this film does. That's one of the things that really disturbs me about it. I said before that I, I would probably like the film more if it were not Godzilla in it. If it, if it had been a completely original film and they made up an entirely new monster, I might be more prone to uh, to enjoying the film. Although uh, we, we should make the point here that whatever we think of it, uh, the movie has done gangbuster business in Japan and, in fact, won several awards, including Best Picture in the Japanese Academy Awards. That's very true, and I, I think, you know, that at least the way I look at this film is, and, and why I think it, it wound up being so popular in Japan, is that it's Godzilla for people who don't care about Godzilla. It's, uh, you know, it, its focus is not very much on Godzilla himself, it's on, on all this political satire, and then they kind of sneak in the, uh, you know, the nationalistic bent towards the, the end of the movie. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of people who don't normally go see these kind of films, went to see this film. That's why it wound up being so popular. And in my my company, because you know, my, my business is headquartered in Japan, so I have multiple trips there a year, each year. And, you know, a lot of the people in, in the office in Japan know that, you know, I'm really interested in Godzilla. So they've, when they all went to see it, they, they were all interested to talk to me about it. And, Almost to a person, everybody thought that, you know, one of the reasons they really liked this film was because it shows Japan supposedly acting on their own and solving their own problems. And, you know, that kind of, and of course, they also enjoyed making fun of the government. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the only thing that they didn't talk about was Godzilla. They didn't really seem to really care about that because Godzilla was just the reason for that, for all this political satire. And you know, that was what, in general, at least in the small sample size of people that I talked to who are, are in no way fans, that's what people were kind of uh, really you know, latching on to as, as far as what made it uh, popular for them. The, I find it really interesting uh, how Japan has changed. I mean, since, like, before World War II, you know, hugely imperialistic military power. And so since World War II, they're literal, I guess, legally uh, mandated behavior has been more pacifistic and, you know, they've been more involved uh, in... I think people tend to think of it more as a uh, a technological uh, capitalistic, you know, culture uh, than as a, uh, a political uh, uh, military power, right? And, and that's because of how efficient they were. <laughs> My goodness, they were really good at being a military imperialistic government. They were very effective. Uh, but uh, so to see this, 
is is quite a shift, as you say. The uh, I guess the themes of the older film were more about um, uh, the dangers of uh, that everybody faces, all countries face with nuclear power and nuclear bombs. And I, I imagine that Godzilla in, in the Godzilla verse uh, there have been um, other sort of overarching human problems. I mean, right now. Um, I find Godzilla versus Hedera to be more effective uh, message about the dangers of pollution than the crying Native American from the commercials in the 70s. So, I mean, when I think about uh, y- using Godzilla for uh, or using kaiju in general as uh, as these, uh, would that be uh, symbolic uh, archetype type things? Uh, can you think of some other cases where any kaiju have been used this way? I think you're asking where, uh, how, in what various ways the films have been used to address social and political issues. <laughs> Other than uh, Hetero, which you just mentioned, uh, we another film, Godzilla's Revenge, or uh, also known as All Monsters Attack. Uh, it gets a little bit confusing because a lot of these movies have multiple titles, so we're not always sure about what movie we're talking about. But this is the uh, the 1969 film where uh, pretty much all the monsters are just imaginary in this kid's head. And that film was used to address the uh, the latchkey kid uh, phenomenon that was going on in Japan at that time, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, another social issue. That, that, that's, again, kind of my... I don't really think Godzilla's ever been used for political purposes until this... Uh, but another example would be Violante, which is a uh, warning against the dangers of biotechnology. Oh, that's uh, when the monster is crossed with a rose bush, right? Yes. <laughs> Uh, All Monsters Attack is strange because it's probably my least favorite of the films from the storyline perspective. Uh, yeah, my- but it has so many awesome monsters in it, right? So uh, you know, that's the is that the only film with Kumanga? It may be. Oh no, no, no! In fact, that was stock footage. Uh, Kumanga, also known as Spiga, that's that's another thing that changes names a lot. A lot of these monster names change, but uh, it was from Son of Godzilla. And I think the island in that movie is Solgale Island. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, I need to rewatch that. So, Son of Godzilla is Minya? Minya, yeah. Okay. And also, I think, uh, also that monster, Kamanga Spiga, whatever you want to call it, is also in Destroy All Monsters briefly, but I think that's stock footage, too. And I guess, it, does he show up, or she? I'm not really sure if it's a boy or girl, but the, the, is in uh, Final Wars Part 1 or 2? I don't remember. Yes, yeah. And she, uh, uh, I, I assume it's a she just because it's a spider. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> also in uh, also in Final Wars, yes. Yeah. I assume, that, and again, this is me making an assumption, but it may not be quite right. The uh, There is a, uh, there's a very similar monster in Kong Skull Island uh, that certainly looks, if not directly supposed to be Kamanga, looks very... Uh, similar, uh, a spider crab. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Uh, yeah, so I just got. I finally got to see. I had a. I had to see that movie twice to see it completely because uh, we had a little family emergency come up in the middle of the first attempt. Uh, so I now have that successfully under my belt. And uh, if uh, listeners manage to go see the film, I and if you like giant monsters, I highly recommend it. Uh, I don't know if you'll like the plot, but boy howdy, they do some fun giant monster stuff in there. Uh, and you stay through to the end credits, right? Great fun there at the end. 
Yes, please don't tell me what it is, guys. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm pleased uh, with the way that the legendary monster verse is panning out. Uh, there, I don't like everything that's been done in those two films, but for the most part, I like them more than not. They're very expensive to make, um, and I, I guess now they're more expensive. So, but you know, CGI looks fantastic now in ways that it didn't before. It used to be very flat looking in a three dimensional world. The new the new stuff's looking better. But on a, you know, the, the way T V definitions are increasing when you watch these movies at home, sometimes it's for me at least, it's hard to enjoy C G work compared to uh practical effects. And so I like to watch old movies sometimes in these Blu ray releases and then surprised I'm always surprised when the old practical effects look phenomenal. I mean, they just look so good, and then the CG looks clunky. It's almost... The problem with the CGI for me is nothing, no other effect ages as poorly as CGI. And uh, something that was done even as recently as five years ago can age really bad. Yeah. And, yeah. Whereas you don't have that problem with stop motion or suitmation or virtually anything else. And I don't know what it, again, this is a cost issue, I imagine, but I mean, people, the, the as you know, Moore's Law takes effect and computers get more and more powerful, it becomes possible to do some really incredible rendering on less expensive machines. And copyright kind of prevents this, but I, I maybe in my lifetime, and they've extended it so long, but maybe some of these films will get some really nice, you know, fan-based touch-up work or something. Maybe it's not within the power of the, these movie companies to put together the funding to, like, fix. And I, I, I would, I'm very hesitant. This is an artistic question. These guys were doing the best they could with what they had. But it's also uh, this incredibly rich uh, treasure trove of material that some, you know, young people today may not even want to bother with because the effects don't look as good. So... Uh, now, my kids have really enjoyed them, but I don't know if it's universal because some people were like, oh, that looks lame, and they never really get in and enjoy the film. you got to like get past the the disbelief part, I think, to really get a, a good experience here. There's an animated Godzilla project in the works. Uh, yeah, and it was just announced that uh, at least in our market it's going to be on Netflix. Oh, interesting. Okay. And this is going to be direct to Netflix. Uh, like, do we know how many episodes there are going to be? That kind of thing. It's supposed to be a feature film. Oh, okay. So it's a feature film, but it's done in a is it computer animated style or traditional? Well, that, yeah, and I, I'm not sure yet what I mean, they they call it computer graphic animation, but I really don't know what it's going to look like. If it's going to be something like Final Fantasy kind of thing, where they they try and render everything, you know, right. Fully or whether it's just going to be your traditional cell animation augmented by computers. I mean, that's until we start seeing something, you know, some some actual frames from it, it's hard to say what it's going to be like. The uh, company responsible is called Polygon Pictures. They're the same people who did the Clone Wars TV show, and I think they exclusively do uh, 3D animation. Although some of the stuff that they've done... Uh, looks a lot like cell animation. Interesting. Which I, I would be very pleased if that's the route they went. If if they if it the more it looks like cell animation rather than 3D, the happier I'd be. Uh, I think it would be a much better choice. Uh, I would agree with that. 
And when you say 3D, you don't mean like put on the glasses. You mean 3D style, whereas like it's got yes. depth, depth to it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That, yeah. We don't really have a term around here uh, exactly at my house, but my son is really when, he, when we talk about an animated film, he always wants to know if it's going to look more like uh, uh, a flat, you know, 2D or, or a 3D rendering. But he's we're a little unclear what the best term for that is. But I like that. I mean, it just gets confusing when people think you need to put on glasses versus not. But uh, uh, fully rendered spaces versus uh, cell-based uh, rendering. It, it's it is amazing what can be done. It just surprises me how expensive it is because there it, the uh, it seems like uh, no matter how much people are able to do at home, the price that the movie studios claim for the cost of producing these things keeps going up and up and up. And you know. Fans and amateurs can do such astonishing work, and and I just I'm always confounded that it's so expensive and such a lengthy process to bring these things out to market when uh, you know the demand is always going to exceed the ability to produce. I suppose uh, the thing this company has done that I think looks the best was something called Knights of Sidonia. That uh, that also is supposed to be. That's exactly what I said. It's it's a. 3D animation, but it looks like it's cell animation, so I'm happy with it. Is that S-I-D or S-E-D? S-I-D-O-N-I-A. That's interesting. I wonder if it's related to Mars in some way. There's that whole Sardonia. That's where the face on Mars region is. Uh, so there's a new sequel coming out to the Godzilla 2014 that looks like it's going to somehow tie into what's being done with Kong on Skull Island. Uh, supposedly in the, in the new film or, or Godzilla King of the Monsters, as they're calling it, uh, that's going to have Rodan, Mothra, and King Ghidra, all, so all four monsters supposedly. Sweet. Which I'm, I'm not sure that's such a great idea to do so soon. I think perhaps <laughs> that should be, uh, spread out over a couple of films. I mean, when, in the original Ghidra, the three-headed monster, you also had all four monsters, but, uh, some, most of the monsters had already been established in previous movies. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So, it, yeah. it, 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 from a storytelling perspective, it, it's uh, it's probably more acceptable to your brain to ease yourself into a world with these giant monsters rather than just suddenly there were none, and now there's look at this. You know, here's all of them. You know, well, one of the problems uh, one of the problems I see with that is that you wind up uh, just kind of escalating things so quickly that you leave yourself no room to go in the future. Yeah. I, I, was, I used to t- I told, always told people when I saw the first Avengers, it's like, okay, well, that was really great, but where do you go from there? Because I don't know how you're going to you know, top that in terms of the spectacle at the end. And sure enough, I mean, what you got with the second film is pretty much exactly the same thing. The big giant battle with lots of uh, minions from the other side that you, know, you have a big, long, extended battle with. But you really can't go too much farther beyond that. And if you do something like this, where you're going to start adding three, four extra you know, monsters in it and having a big battle with them, then I mean, what's next? Do you have to have 10 monsters in the next one and, and 15 in the next one? Uh, it just, you, know, you just set yourself up for you know, not being able to top yourself. Or if you do try and top yourself, you wind up Taking something that, that just winds up starting to get ridiculous because but it gets it's to be like uh, overblown. So that's that's yeah. that's my concern with them going this far this fast. 
and the, also it comes into the thing about in the reboot of Godzilla, they introduced the idea of mutos, and that's what the, I, I don't know if you want to call them the villains of the film were, but the, the, these are massive, unidentified terrestrial organisms. The thing is, though, that's like UFOs, right? It's, it's, a, it's a classification of an unknown phenomena. But the monsters themselves represent only one of basically any class of unknown monster that's going to appear after this. So uh, until you identify it, it's a muto, no matter what it looks like, right? So it's, yeah. it's a strange approach because they, they make reference to that in the Kong film. And I'm, I'm curious uh, if, if that happened. And this is, this is just me being an herb. But what's going to happen to the two creatures we saw in the first Godzilla film? If mutos are an entire class, those things will need their own specific name, right? So, uh, to, to to sort of differentiate them from all the other unknown creatures. Of course, the new ones, we already know what they are, at least in the sense that, uh, as you say, these monsters are going to appear in the next Godzilla film. I find it really interesting because I like all of these monsters and I like to see them. And it's always been a problem with these from a, a, a from a narrative perspective that most humans are only concerned with humans for storylines, right? So the, the drama comes from what happens to people. So they always have to tack on a human story to make us enjoy the monster story. Or at least that's what the people who produce these seem to believe. I'm not sure it's true. I feel pretty comfortable that I could watch a movie with just a bunch of monsters doing stuff. I don't necessarily need to have a, a love interest and uh, a human villain and all those other complications to enjoy the films. But since they won't get made unless somebody's willing to dump millions of dollars into it, and those approvals are always going to require those basic, basic narrative tools, I guess I'm out of luck until I get the ability to... Uh, or until fans are able to do these sort of things on their own. I don't know. I don't know. Is that? Do you ever just sort of wish that they could just do monster movies with giant monsters and not necessarily have to have people? I don't know if I ever thought that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. no. Yeah. Negative. Um, <laughs> I, that's probably another one of the reasons I didn't care much for Shin Godzilla because pretty much there is no human story in that. And there's it's almost... I guess, in, in a way, they try to make it more like a documentary because there's really no characters or, or no people you get to know or people who have any story behind them. They're just kind of like, they're there and they're reacting and, okay, that's it. But there's really no particular story to it. Well, I, I, I feel like we're about to enter what could either be a, a renaissance or a disaster, and we won't really know until it happens. What <laughs> I don't know that it's going to be any... Uh, new era. I think this, you know, again, Shin Godzilla to me strikes me as a one-off effort. Okay, so I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to lead and uh, be the leader in a certain direction or not. Uh, I think it would be very difficult for them to follow up and, and continue that storyline, especially since Ano's not interested in going any further with it. So I think probably it's going to be a lot like. Like the uh, two, you know, the millenniums, uh, millennium films, where the next film is just going to be yet again somebody else's take on the same thing. Well, if you could see them redo any of these other properties that ha that haven't already been scheduled, what 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 other monster movie would you be interested in seeing them uh, revisit? Well, honestly, I just as soon see somebody try something new instead of constantly going after remaking and remaking and remaking. Oh, I'm, I mentioned uh, that I'm I'm fond of the uh, the British monster Gorgo, so I'd like to see that again. Yeah, I think my favorite, uh, just as far as standalone films, 
might have been uh, Rodan, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I, I love the. I think they've had time to see it though, right? Don't you? So I can. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it how in the in the story the the uh, there's something happening in this mine and they're not really clear on what's going on exactly and then they find out there's these giant worm monsters and they're like oh no these giant worm monsters they're you know it's causing earthquake type effects it's killing miners and you're like that's horrific they're so big and dangerous and then then you find out that those are just the things that Rodan eats. That's just his food for baby Rodan. I mean, like, you know, and there's more than one. So I, that, that's the kind of uh, almost Lovecraftian level shocker that just blew me away when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, and I, I think it, you know, it suffers from uh, the special effects don't hold up so well. But just I love that story, and I, I would love to see that kind of level of surprise in a monster film. And that's very unusual uh, to, for them to, it's hard to come up with surprises, I guess. So that's one of the few uh, films where I would say uh, a case could be made for saying that the American version is actually superior to the original Japanese version. Oh, really? What, what's the difference of Rodan? Uh, well, in both films, you have the two Rodan monsters, but in uh, the American version, uh, the second monster is, introduced much, much earlier. And in the Japanese version, it's just, like, thrown in there almost at the last minute, very nonchalantly, uh, like, almost like an afterthought. Yeah, it kind of comes out of nowhere, like, oh, like, oh, what's, what's that? Why did that happen? Oh, really? It, so that's like yeah. a, that's just oh, look, an editing what? choice they made, or did the Americans do reshoots? No, no reshoots, but, uh, yeah, they, they just... Using reversed footage and uh, changing a few of the events in the film, they just made the uh, second one show up much earlier. Wow, I never noticed that. So that's I've only seen the American version based on what you just told me. That's that's interesting. So, and I, I was always I I really enjoyed that film. Uh, lots of people get eaten. It's good stuff. So, <laughs> what's weird too though is that in the American version, there's a uh, there's a visual faux pas that only happens in that version of the film and it's not in the Japanese one one scene where they're at an airport and uh, you look out the window and uh, what what ends up happening is that they were, this was just uh, film footage of an airport that was being projected behind them for some reason because they obviously they were shooting this in the studio so they're not really at an airport so they just have uh, film footage behind them sure. but there's one part where in the American version, it starts looping over. So, like, you you see uh, a a vehicle moving, and then all of a sudden it starts going backwards. Well, I think that that's because they, you know, they, they wanted to extend the dialogue in that scene, and they just, they just you know, looped the, the footage backwards rather than uh, cut the dialogue down for the scene. I mean, I, I, I can't say for sure if that's what happened, but, I mean, I can't imagine any other reason why that would would happen because they don't. I'm sure they didn't have the separate elements of mat shot in order to redo that. So I'm sure that they just rewound the the footage back just to extend, you know, like I said, just to extend the dialogue so that it fit what you know the American people had had done for that particular scene. Yeah, we haven't talked at all about uh, Gamera or Daimajin or Gafo or Gilala. 
That's true. How does Gamera fit into this uh, in, for, in real history? How does Gamera fit into the Japanese cinema history? Like, was he a direct response to Godzilla? Or well, in short answers, yes. It was just yeah. <laughs> Uh, 1965, uh, Dae wanted some of that Daikaiju money action that Godzilla was getting, because uh, you know, these films were popular in the 60s. Uh, they, they weren't the only type of Japanese film that was popular, but I guess there were also, uh, like the Zatoichi films, samurai, you know, movies, there were comedies, there were lots of films that were popular, but like, uh, giant monster movies were a type of film that were popular. So, uh, Dai wanted some of Toho's action, so they made their own monster. And Gamera has spawned quite a few sequels. I think, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners will have seen them primarily through Mystery Science Theater uh, 2000. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, they're, they seem to be more kid-focused. Uh, or they, That's my take on it. I mean, is that, were they deliberately targeted at children? Uh, yes. Very in, yes, very intentionally so. Uh, Noriaki Yuasa, who made most of those movies, uh, just really liked kids, and he wanted to make movies that were friendly for kids. So that's why Gamera became the friend of all children. Which is uh, kind of ironic, because when you look at the, those old films, they couldn't be more bloody and violent. Right, exactly. <laughs> at the same time, which, which I always thought was, was very peculiar, that, you know, yes, I mean, Yuasa was really totally interested in... in you know, making these films for very small kids, but at the same time, you put images in there that were particularly gruesome. I mean, you know, Guile's getting his head chopped off, and there's always cameras, and blood is flowing like water, because actually it is water. <laughs> and, uh, you know, things like that happen, which, which at the same time as Toho, that was something that Tsuburaya was vehemently against, you know, showing Godzilla bleeding on bleeding. That kind of thing, like that kind of violence. So it was, that was that was kind of uh, an interesting uh, contradiction that was in those you know, the old Gamma films. Yeah, and then think about it too. And then what? So what happened is uh, those films, for whatever reason, were popular enough that uh, it finally, with Godzilla's Revenge, it, it kind of prompted Toho to answer back, and I think Godzilla's Revenge was their answer back to a film that could target the same audience, and that's why you got, uh, after Destroying Monsters, they kind of you know, went backwards and, and kind of went to a very simple, uh, low-cost uh, type of production, and what that production wound up being was, you know, like I said, a direct response to Dae, and I think that in doing so, they beat Dai at their own game. That's interesting. That reminds me of the sort of few, not really few, but the, the parallels between um, Hammer and Amicus films. Uh, it's like Amicus yeah. went so far as to even use a lot of the same actors, you know, so. Right, same type of thing. Uh, and we should mention that uh, for a long time, fans of uh, the genre have considered the Gamera films to be just inferior copies of the Godzilla movies. But an interesting thing happened in the 1990s uh, when Gamera was rebooted, and they had this this trilogy of new Gamera films that were a complete remake. And Godzilla movies were being remade. At, you know, they those Godzilla movies in the 90s were happening at the same time. But the general consensus seems to be that the Gamera films of the 1990s are not only are they better than 
the Godzilla films of the 1990s, but they are among the best uh, giant monster movies and, and or monster movies period ever made. They're very popular here at my house. Yeah. <laughs> I think Godzilla gets more rewatched, but I think there's, in general, I enjoy watching those and my kids like them quite a bit. Um, so I don't know. That's anecdotal, but <laughs> I like the special effects in them and the, they have a nice story arc. I am curious though, like, Gamera is such an odd creature because he bleeds, so he seems to be biological, yet he flies through space and shoots flames out of his leg holes. He's, just, he's an odd cat. I don't know what his story is exactly. So, uh, you know, people, and we'll even do it for this episode, I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, why these kaiju are biologically impossible. But you, you know, trying to explain that about Gamera just is silly. I mean, he's clearly not. A, he's more of a fantasy creature, I guess. And and even Gamera seems uh, realistic compared to some of the things that crop up in Japanese television shows. <laughs> yeah. Wow, and there's been a lot of that too. You know, the uh, so I I would imagine that Ultraman and Specter Man these also were sort of uh, kicked off by the kaiju films. Yeah, well, pretty much everything, you know, in the mid-60s, that was the, the kaiju boom. When, uh, you know, we had Godzilla vs. the Thing, Geeker the Three-Headed Monster, so theatrically those films were doing very well. Toho had been producing a few other films at the same time, uh, Dogura, Atragon, uh, and then at the same time, Subarai had started up uh, Ultra Q and Ultra Man. So all around this time period, there was the... Uh, the big boom in monster films in, uh, in monsters in Japan. Uh, TV was starting to eat away at it, but you had not only Dai went in with uh, Gamera, and then you know, the, the following year you had Gappa from Mikatsu uh, and Yulala from Shochiku. So, yeah, everybody was kind of getting on the bandwagon at that point, and... Unfortunately, very quickly, it, it all started to fall apart as TV started to suck the life out of the feature, uh, the, the feature film business. It was a lot easier for you know, kids to stay at home and watch monsters on TV for free than it was to have you know, mom and dad take them to the theater and pay to see pretty much the same thing. Quality-wise, it wasn't really the same thing, but, you know, for especially for, for younger children, that was probably pretty much the mindset. So, yeah, unfortunately, the proliferation of monsters, especially as far as it goes to TV, uh, started sounding the, started, started the monster film industry on the downswing. Yeah, that's unfortunate, but I, I did get some great memories from that. I, I, I liked, uh, in America it was called Space Giants, uh, but I guess in Japan it was Ambassador Magma. Magma yeah. Taishiki. That's just such a, it's a trippy show, but I mean, it's got a, a, a family of robots with the father being, I don't know, what is he, 50 feet tall, 100 feet tall, something like that. He's really big. Uh, yeah, 100 feet tall in the, uh, in the translated version. I don't know how accurate it is. It's got shapeshifters and aliens and giant monsters, and uh, it's, it's awesome. And it's long. It's like 52 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, the, there's just a tremendous amount of fun material out there. So, I know, unfortunately, we're running out of time here, but I, I wanted to uh, ask the question that we always like to ask our guests, but we're going to modify it just a little bit, because uh, before we even did this interview, I, I know you've expressed some 
uh, reservations about picking a single favorite monster. So, <laughs> yeah. what, so I'm going to I'm going to ask it this way. Yes. What What are some of your favorite monsters, and what do you think your favorite kaiju film is? Shall I go first? Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, obviously, there's only one king, so that that's going to be my favorite monster. In uh, second, excellent. Okay. Huh? <laughs> I think Tong, excellent, right? Mm-hmm. America. <laughs> yeah. No, no. yeah, so so to, to spell it out for people out there, yeah, Godzilla takes first place. Second place I would put uh King Ghidorah or King Ghidra or Ghidra, however you're going to pronounce it, and you can pronounce it all those ways, they're all correct. Uh one, one name for each head. Right? Yes. One <laughs> uh but uh, unfortunately I don't think he's been done justice since the nineteen sixties. Uh and in third place, I'll throw a curveball and put in the uh, the British monster Gorgo and his mother. Nice. Yes. Oh, you thought about this. Uh huh. <laughs> and I guess I have after- huge show notes on this episode. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, they, uh, I don't really have any uh, any of that fall into line after that. Uh, you know, I like Angulus. I like Mothra. I like Rodan. I guess I like Rodan more than Angulus and Mothra, so I'll, we'll put Rodan at number four, and we'll just put we'll put Mothra at number five. Okay, Ed. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, Godzilla, without a doubt, is number one. I mean, Godzilla is the reason that uh, all of this got started, and it's the probably the most iconic monster character that ever came out of Japan. Uh, it'd be hard to to pick against Godzilla, but beyond Godzilla. Uh, I would have to agree with Mike that King Ghidra is probably the, uh, the uh, second on my list. It's just you know such an impressive looking design, uh, and you just I can I can still think back to the the day that I saw that film in the theater, Ghidra uh, the Three Headed Monster, and how overwhelming that experience was and seeing that that creature on the screen the first time. It's something that I'll never forget. Uh, so yeah, I would put Ghidra as, as uh, second, and, and probably my third favorite uh, giant monster would, would be Mothra. Mothra is just again, it's a kind of iconic figure, uh, and I like the idea of the simplicity of its design. Uh, I think that you know, it's in, all too often you know, people get a little, uh, especially today, you know, when, when people are designing creatures and spaceships and stuff they go overboard on detail and and making it look complicated uh i'm kind of of the opposite approach you know that i think simplicity is better. there's beauty in simplicity just like in spaceships uh you'll take the enterprise take the enterprise over everything else because the enterprise is just a couple of simple lines and it's it's basically frozen motion it looks beautiful the way it is and and i'll uh, apply the same kind of thinking to Mothra. Mothra has that, that simplicity of design that, that is elegant and uh, very impressive. I, I shouldn't ask any more questions because I know we're out of time, but I, Godzuki or Scrappy-Doo? Godzuki or Scrappy-Doo, who's the worst? <laughs> well, I'm only, I will actually watch the, the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla and hate it. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The Scrappy Doo, I just won't even watch. So, I, yeah, that's, the Scrappy Doo is worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and death is not an option. <laughs> Are we talking uh, about for the characters? 
<laughs> yeah, I just wait. I I hate not, Godzuki. Yeah. Every time I hear Godzuki, I hear and Godzuki, and then the don't little circle that. music. Don't don't stop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't stop. That's his. All right. All right. Thanks so much for coming, guys. We really enjoyed talking. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was okay. fun. You're welcome. We love it. Great. Thanks, guys. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today you heard Blake Smith and Karen Stolzno interview Michael Keller and Ed Gotraszewski about Godzilla and other giant monsters. Please check out the show notes at monstertalk.org for links to their work. We appreciate their sharing so much of their time with us to talk about these awesome monsters. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions you heard today were those of ourselves and our guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. I'm not even sure that Skeptic Magazine has an official position on Godzilla. Heck, they probably don't even believe it's a real threat. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. One more quick mention, Monster Talk fan Jeff Zornow does some fantastic Godzilla art. You can find him on Twitter at Z-O-R-N-O-W-13, and there's a link to his artwork in the show notes. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit Skeptic.com to sign up. Boy, howdy, they do some fun giant monster stuff in there. Uh, and you stay through to the end credits, right? Great fun there at the end. Yes, please don't tell me what it is, guys. I haven't seen it yet. No, no, oh. I, I wouldn't tell you, but but I was just saying, Matthew. I'm just saying, Matthew Broderick still looks great. He's aged so well. That's all I'm saying. What? <laughs> I'm not sure if the banana was necessary. It was important to the plot. Okay. <laughs> With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.